This podcast is brought to you by Lannan Foundation and is available at podcast.lannan.org. Hello, everyone. Um, before I um, say a few words, um, I want to remind everyone to shut off their cell phones. I better do this myself. I'm Michael Wiegers. I'm the executive editor of Copper Canyon Press. Um, and I want to uh, take a quick moment first to thank, uh, <laughs> thank Lannon uh, for uh, making a place of poetry, a place for poetry in our days, um, and particularly for bringing Natalie to Santa Fe to read for all of us. Um, Natalie Center Sapico is the recipient of a Pen America Osterweil Award and of course a Lannan Literary Fellowship, um, as well as fellowships from Canto Mundo and um, the Poetry Foundation's coveted Ruth Lilly Fellowship. She's the author of two books of poetry and has recently relocated to the Pacific Northwest where she's now teaching at the University of Puget Sound. And Copper Canyon Press is based out of the Northwest as well, so we're happy to have her nearby and I can't wait to break bread at my table with you. So, um, In her first two books, Natalie grapples with how to write violence and the structures that encourage violence, particularly as violence flaunts itself along both sides of the border. In her stunning debut, Virgin Cities, she announced herself as una poeta fronteriza, whose poems resist the fetishization of violence while humanizing the border as more than a metaphor or a news clip. Her border presents itself as something corporeal and at times even erotic, a rupture and suture drawn across bodies. And while the border provides a singular impediment to multiple loves and hopes, her book, The Virgin Cities, is ultimately an insistent love song to her divided hometown of El Paso, Ciudad Juarez. It's also a personal illumination of strengthening romance. With this poet's speaker, with the poet slash speaker's husband, Angel, rendered as a beloved fronterizo everyman. Together they love and play and sweat and fear so far from God. Around them, families and lovers are divided, mass graves are unearthed, women's mutilated bodies discovered in the desert, journalists mischaracterizing reality, and violent threat often lurking just under the surface. Somewhere on the other side of the seemingly safe refuge of marriage and family. Her poems try to make sense of the daily losses as she raises the question, what can art do in the face of such brutality and death? Her second book, which we were fortunate enough to publish, um, Lima Limon, um, divides and converges as it draws its title from the Spanish singer Concha Piquer's song, A la Lima y a, y a la Limon, a mid-20th century song that warns women about waiting too long to get married. Moving across a variety of formal gestures, including recipes, resistant counterpoints, sonnets, and prose poems, Lima Limon is unrelenting in its examination of conjoined machismo-marianismo gender dynamics. Personally, when I first read this manuscript for the book, I was immediately drawn, by in, drawn in by its variety of voices and modes as she inhabits as, as, that she inhabits in her, in her poems. 
and the ways in which those voices perpetuate and resist the binary roles that men and women play out. Personally, I value strangeness and conflicted unpredictability in poetry, in the books we publish at least, and Lima Limon offers both. The women's voices Natalie inhabits are at times performative and at other times very personal and vulnerable. Lima Limon simultaneously transmigrates narrative borders, cultural borders, and gender borders as it interrogates our individual con contributions to misogyny and abusive relationships. By variously illuminating the voices of women who are caught up in the recycling of macho iembra roles, she, encour she, she is encouraging vigilance of our individual habits and how we contribute to shared harmful gender and cultural dynamics. A simple, seemingly playful song that may serve as a domestic soundtrack within her own family is also a haunting reminder of how violence insinuates itself into our lives. Through the vehicle of song, Natalie herself subverts the expected and the accepted. In The New Yorker, critic Dan Chasen reviewed Lima Limon, noting Natalie's astonishing verbal crossing that reveal a mind as richly self-divided as, self as any you will find. While Natalie's poetic mind may indeed be, as he says, self-divided, I understand it more as being self-compassionate that self-compassion and self-witness can in turn lead to self-empowerment and the compassionate celebration of others. It's been a tremendous honor and privilege to work with her, to edit her book and publish her, and it's just, and it's my extreme pleasure to welcome, uh, welcome her to Santa Fe, and I hope you'll join me. Thank you, Michael. That was such a beautiful introduction. I can't believe that I'm here in Santa Fe. Um, it's sort of overwhelming um, for me and for my family. I did grow up kind of, you know, sometimes we would come to Santa Fe for like a weekend or something away from El Paso, um, but it was always sort of like... I don't know, for me it represented like this art world that I kind of fantasized that I knew like it, it must exist, it exists there. Um, and so to be here now in this space feels, um, with all of you, feels incredibly special. So thank you for joining me um, this afternoon. En el año de los setas En mi boca, una flor. En el año de los setas, en mi boca, una flor. En el año de los setas, en mi boca, una flor. In the age of los setas, St. Michael hangs demons with velvet thread and opens a torrent of tissue flames in a scene created in a box of Altoids. St. Michael bites a cracked enamel heart, too big for his tiny plastic cleft to carry. I am in mourning 
in the bloodiest year of Mexican history. I stare at St. Michael, my little automaton, and feed myself weak old bread that crumbles my teeth to dirt. I save my oral rubble to sell as earth for the burial of men, men who only value a woman for her extra rib, that holy thing that breaks and heals without a cast, men who want to fill my body with a clutter of spiders, eager to eat the flies that swarm my uterine lining. In the age of Los Cetas, I only take what I can carry, a reliquary of clots. All the children I failed to bear because I've been hit by men who in their thirst for me strangled a flash flood into our kitchen. Don't tell me I deserve better in the age of Los Cetas. I am blessed with a man as beautiful as St. Michael, whose shirts I pierce, tug, and embroider with roses made from a demon's noosed velvet thread. As Michael talked about in his introduction, the title of this book, Lima Limon, comes from a song that was regularly sung in my household while doing chores or doing housework um, called Lima Limon by Conchita Piquer. Um, and just to give you kind of a brief like overview of what the song is about, the song is um, basically follows the narrative of this woman who at the age of 30, she is not married and she waits at a window and all of the children, neighborhood children, sing underneath her window, from the lemon to the lime, you'll have no one to love you. From the lemon to the lime, you will end up single, right? It's like a very, but it's like a very happy melody. Um, and so I always liked that song because I was like, oh, it's like a happy song, I think. Um, till I really started listening to the, to the lyrics and kind of thinking about them. And the song ends, as it was explained to me very happily, in that um, the woman who's 30 ends up marrying a man who's 20 years her senior, and now she's very happy because she has someone she can walk the park with. <laughs> so I was always like, ooh, <laughs> I don't know about that. So I started really unpacking this idea of Nima Limon from that song. And also, um, of course, that in Latin America, we can never agree what it's called, right? Lima Limon, what you'll get, you don't always know, right? So, Lima Limon, Infancia. I want to be the lemons in the bowl on the cover of the magazine. I want to be round, to be yellow, to be pulled from branches. I want to be wax, to be white with pith, to be bright, to be zested in the corners of a table. I want you to say my name like the word lemon. Say it like the word limon. Undress me in strands of rind. I want my saliva to be citrus. I want to corrode my husband's wedding ring. I want to be a lemon with my equator marked in black ink, small dashes to show my shape, pitted and convex. Azar. 
I lie on my back in the grass and let the weight of a man on top of me. Out of breath, he searches for a place on my body that hasn't flooded. The only dry patch left is my hair, which he uses to wipe the sweat from his face. He is disgusted because I have turned the earth beneath us damp. He says I am an experience like standing in an irrigated grove of lemon trees. He says I am the water pooled at each trunk, infused with citrus and pesticide. He says my moisture brings mold and my body is nauseating. I wonder if I had not said his name over and over, would he still think of me as small and round and fresh as lemon, as vaginal and arched as limon? Madurez. I wear a teineta and pin a mantilla to my hair. I want to be Conchita Piquer, warning women about becoming lemons. The goal, tener alguien que me quiera. I want to be my mother singing me to sleep. A la lima y a limón, te vas quedar soltera. My grandmother hated penetas, mantillas, and women who wore too much gold. She'd say this, pulling my hair tight into a bun. She hated penetas and mantillas, pero la necesidad obliga. I don't want to be the woman whose skin dissolves into the caldo she makes for her dying parents. That kind of woman cries alone because she has no fat husband to make her cry in a home of her own. A la lima y a limón, tú no tienes quien te quiera. A la lima y a limón, te vas quedar soltera. Vejez. My body is a fruteria where wives send their husbands to ask for a dozen limones. I pull at the fat around my waist and unravel a plastic bag. I count each limon from the bin between my ribs and feel for the juice under thin skin. Each husband takes a piece of my body home with him in every limon. A piece of my body he can slice into quarters and squeeze into his beer. A piece of my body to press into sugar and feed to his children laughing at the TV. What more can I give than my body in pieces to strange husbands? What more can I give than the limones that grow between my breasts? I tell each husband, Ay limon, mi limonero, show me your list. Decrepitud. When the stranger learns I speak Spanish, he makes me stand in my underwear and read from Borges's El Aleph. And because I only want the stranger to love me, I read and wonder if Borges could help me jump through a period on the page to my death. After the stranger whispers, you are Lima, your tongue strips ink from pages. 
I wonder if the stranger imagines Lima as green or yellow, as sweet or bitter, or as a city where the snow collects on your lover's eyelashes in mid-July. Say limon, clean and ripe and bursting on your tongue. Say lemon, broken and ugly and not up to par. Say lima, rima and rima and spoken from God. God speaks, rima rimak. God has spoken, rimak, rima, lemon, lima, limon. The first house that I lived in um, outside of my parents' house in El Paso uh, was this sort of strange fourplex. Um, if you're familiar with El Paso at all, it was like right between Mesa and Stanton, kind of near the Sunset Heights district um, near downtown. And it was, uh, I mean, I mainly, you know, we, I was like very, very poor. I had no place to go, um, but I wanted to get my own place and I did. Um, but I was very, it was very hard for me living um, in that apartment even though I ended up living there for like three years um, because so many of my neighbors were undocumented immigrants but I specifically spent a lot of time with women who uh, were undocumented um, and were in many of them very abusive relationships, financially abusive relationships, physically abusive relationships. Um, and they were terrified, right, to report anything um, to the police because they'd be taken away from their children, which is something that I don't think we, we talk about enough when we talk about um, the way that we deal with undocumented immigrants, but specifically undocumented women in this country. My macho takes care of me good. Because he's a citizen of the United States, I got a stove this big, a refri this full, a mirror just to see my pretty face. He says my name's on this license. I drive La Troca so you don't have to, mija. I am a citizen of the United States. Because he's a citizen, we are muy lejos de Dios, but we love the United States. I don't wash laundry with cakes of jabonzote because my macho takes care of me good. I bring my macho Nescafe, American-made, because he's a citizen of the United States. I ask for Feria to go to a doctor, and he says, Ingrata, you're not sick. I think chiles then rub my eyes. Siempre llora lloras, chillona. And he's right. I lloro lloro sin saber por qué. I bring my macho smoke in a glass and smooth every shirt with my new electric iron. He says, no hay nadie en casa, why wear clothes at all? So I don't. I fry chicharrones, hiss, hiss across my bare skin. Bang, bang, my macho's fists on the table. He wants mas, mas y mas in his United States. I give him all of me, served on a platter from back home, plump, cracked, and ready-made. Crunch, crunch eats my macho. You married him, says my mother and he takes care of you good in his United Estates.
The women wear surgical masks. For three days to mark that they've been fasting. The fast involves nothing more than a slice of bread twice a day and water. They tell each other this is a luxury because in 10 years, the land won't know moisture even from the well. On the third day, they rise and husk corn to make a caldo de res to break the fast later. This is their monthly morning. They march and clouds of dirt rise from their feet. They carry children on their shoulders and hang retablos from their necks. They march as funeral procession in protest, all dressed in black. How do you explain femicide to someone who's never heard the word? The New York Times said the women look like ghosts, but I've never known breathing to be so audible. By feeding the children first, the women break the fast. No one comes to serve them, and no one cries at this routine. This is an unbeautiful poem, uncrafted with sterile diction. I don't want to turn these women into an aesthetic. I have failed. The last line break shows I still want to build tension. But the pain in my feet from marching with these women, the sour taste in my mouth from wearing a surgical mask with these women as a woman may never leave me. This poem, my failed recreation, their protest, a failed resuscitation. You are a dark body of water with a bed of rock barely visible from your surface. You are the only dark body of water in a desert littered with bleeding cactus. At your collarbones, you carry a gulch held up by a thread of hair. You travel days drinking only from yourself because you are this land's only dark body of water. At the crease of horizon, you find a woman in bed, her chest wet with saliva. You kick her off the bed and take her place among its sheets. A man lies down in bed next to you. He swallows your dark body of water and gives you a woman's body, a body you've never known. As a woman, you receive sores from him, and through the sores, you breathe, and despite the sores, you give birth to a child stillborn for lack of water. You kick the child off the bed, but it remains in the arms of the woman whose bed you stole. You cry to be made again into a dark body of water. The man kicks you off the bed, covers you with dirt, and turns you desert. You cry for a bed he will never let you sleep in again. You cry for your body's bed of rock 
turned desert for lack of water. While I was working on this collection on Lima Limon, I was living in Salt Lake City, Utah, um, and I was fascinated that we had an apple tree <laughs> in our yard, because um, that would never have grown in any of the places, at least that I lived in in El Paso. There are like kind of wealthier areas that have orchards with irrigation areas, but none of the areas that I lived in I could ever so I didn't really grow up around like apple trees, if that makes any sense. I was very fascinated by them. And they reminded me a lot of um, areas of Chihuahua that also have apple orchards, right, and pear orchards. Um, and and I, I started thinking about how it's so funny because like all over, I'm sure now it's become big here too, but you know, the, the big drink of Chihuahua is Sotol, right? That's the, the drink and so that's also made often from apples. Um, and so I was fascinated that I had, I never made sotol or anything, I'm not that, I'm not like a brewer's, whatever they call it, a distiller. Um, but I was fascinated that it could, you know, come from this tree that was growing in my yard. Bad mother, bad father. You come home with a bottle of sotol, an apple floating in its pit. You say the apple grew inside this bottle and you snapped it off a branch to bring home to me. I pour each of us a glass and smash the bottle to rescue its tiny fruit. You drink liquor from the ground until flakes of glass cut your tongue. In my jaw, I carry the apple, little fruit, little child, to the yard to hush its sticky crying. The apple stains my hands yellow as I slide its soft flesh down my throat. When I return to the house, you sniff the corners of my mouth, hungry for any evidence of what I have done. You say, you are the bad mother. I say, you are the bad father to have brought this fruit home at all. I drink and drink until I root into a tree you sell the fruit I bear in bottles. This next poem takes the form of a recipe, um, and I'm going to read it all the way through, including the ingredients that are not traditional ingredients. Um, I also was, I love reading this poem sometimes in places where I don't know, I, I don't always know where to get like good Mexican food. And then I'm like, see, like you can get some things, but like you can't get menudo everywhere, you know? <laughs> and I miss that about living in the Southwest. Receta en el cajón. Ingredients. Mezcal, dogs, bay leaves, coffee, stars, cow's feet, Onion, mesh sieve, tripe, narrow bones, chiles guajillos, timita, copal, oregano, limes, tortillas, hen, garlic, salt, ladle. Directions. One. When your macho comes home gurgling a bottle of mezcal, begin the menudo. Two. 
He'll whisper, Te amo chiquitita, then palm your face to the window. You'll scan for stars made invisible by street lamps. When he lets you go, laugh, I've never liked Estrellita. Three, when he falls asleep at your feet, remember how you disobeyed the song. Marry an old man. Young men like rumba too much. Four, cut tripe into ribbons in the sink. Finger curved ridges clean. Tripe, though combed, is a bowel. Five, light copal in a warm clay bowl until it melts to sap. Make the sign of the cross on your lips, grit its ash against your teeth. Six, in a large pot, tripe, cow's feet, narrow bones, onions, oregano, garlic, and salt. Add cold water and simmer all night. Seven, go to bed. Ignore the smell of shit. It will linger in the house for days. Eight, rise with the rooster and wring a hen's neck. Drain the hen of its blood. Hold its clucking still so it doesn't wake your macho. Hang on a hook. Nine, drain the broth of boiled blood with a funnel and a tight mesh sieve. Pull any meat from its bones and throw cartilage to the dogs hungry on the patio. 10, clean chiles of membranes, roast on the comal. Turn each chile soft in a pot of hot water, then grind. Wash your hands with oil made from the rind of a lime. 11, combine and let simmer. Broth, chiles, tripe, bay leaves, metate petate. 12, in a bowl, limes. In a shaker, oregano. Both on the table. The table floats. Hold it down with a ladle. 13. Wake your macho. Provide coffee. Provide a tinita. 14. Watch him eat. Your kitchen will grow a film of fat you must clean. The tortillas hard in their weight. 15. You look tired, he'll say. You look worse, you'll say. Nod and know he'll be home from the orchard late. Pluck feathers from your hanged hen in the yard. I'm going to read one more um, from Lima Limon and then finish with a uh, new poem that I've never read before to an audience. So I'm nervous. I'm excited. Um, the last poem from Lima Limon that I'll read, though, uh, is called Buen Esqueleto. It takes the form, there was like a viral poem um, by a poet, Maggie Smith, that went around a while ago. And by viral, I mean like, I don't know, if, how many of you are familiar with Good Bones by Maggie Smith? Do you know this? Most people know this poem, right? A lot of people don't. You know, when you think about like what makes a viral poem, like Meryl Streep shared this poem. I think that counts, right, as like a viral poem. Is Meryl sharing your poem? Um, and so I, I was very interested, though, in the conversations around this poem because people really love this poem. And one of the things, the like, big takeaways from Good Bones is that it's a mother really trying to preserve a world of innocence for her children. And I, I loved that idea, um, but it was really different than uh, how I was raised and how I grew up. 
Um, mainly because the way that I grew up and where I grew up, it was sort of my parents were, especially my mom was always very concerned um, and was always like, no, 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 you cannot do that. Like, got to burst that bubble immediately. Like, that's, that will end up in danger. Um, you can't do that. So I wrote a, a response that takes the form of, of Maggie Smith's good bones. Buen esqueleto. Life is short, and I tell this to mis hijas. Life is short, and I show them how to talk to police without opening the door, how to leave the social security number blank on the exam. I tell this to mis hijas. This world tells them I hate you every day, and I don't keep this from mis hijas because of the bus driver who kicks them out onto the street for fare evasion. Because I love mis hijas, I keep them for men who'd knock their heads together just to hear the chime. Life is short and the world is terrible. I know no kind strangers in this country who aren't sisters a desert away, and I don't keep this from mis hijas. It's not my job to sell them the world, but to keep them safe in case I get deported. Our first landlord said with a bucket of bleach, the mold would come right off. He shook mis hijas, said they had good bones for hard work. Mijas, could we make this place beautiful? I tried to make this place beautiful. The last poem I'll read, which is new, um, I'm sort of, it's funny. Growing up in El Paso Juarez, I feel like a lot of the time you don't, a lot of things that you realize, I think, later maybe are traumatic instances don't feel perhaps that they are traumatic because in comparison to what other people are living, it feels like it's not as important or something. And so something that was pretty common, not super common, but did happen several times while I was a child was my mother getting stopped while we would cross from Juarez back um, into El Paso and they would, you know, make us pull over our car and they'd take us out um, and, and they put her like in an interrogation room basically and then I would wait outside and this would happen several, this happened many times while I was growing up and so I'm sort of exploring a little bit of some of those childhood memories <coughs> right now um, and maybe they are important, right? I don't know. Um, so this is America. I tap, tap, tap the window while my mother smiles and mouths, tranquila. I tap, tap the glass, my mother a fish I'm trying to summon. I tap until a border agent says, stop, until a border agent shows me the gun on her belt. The lie, my family left Mexico for work, the truth, my family left Mexico because their sons now kill on demand. My childhood was caught on video, border agents deleted every three months. As a girl, I thought myself a movie star blowing kisses at the children selling chiclets on the bridge. My cruelty from the backseat window caught on video, proof I was an American. The drug-sniffing dogs snapped their teeth at my mother, arrested for her thick accent, 
a warp in her green card. My mother, who mouths tranquila. Isn't it fun, the border agent says. My mother's fingers dark towers on a screen for a biotin scan. Isn't it fun? The state takes a picture of my mother's left ear. Friends, Americans, countrymen, lend me your ears. But only the men washing car windows reply with their dirty water. The border agent points to an American flag and asks, do you know the Pledge of Allegiance? I do, so I stand and pledge to the country that says it loves me so much. It wants my mother dead. Tranquila, my mother mouths. Her teeth, two rows of gold. I could pawn for something shiny, something shiny like the border agent's gun. Friends, Americans, countrymen, lend me your ears so I can hear my mother through this bulletproof glass, so I can hear her over the roar of American cars crossing this dead river by the wave of an agent's pale hand. Thank you. questions and um, I thought I would maybe start things off um, by um, just asking you that the last poem um, is remembering home and, and since you've left El Paso um, you've lived in Salt Lake City you've lived in Nebraska you've lived in Vermont and now Tacoma yeah. do you find yourself writing more about home the farther away you get from it yes um, but I've always, I feel like the minute, so this is really funny for me. So when I, um, you know, I studied creative writing uh, at UTEP. I studied with, with Ben Heminadire Sanz. Um, and I never was not writing anything about the border, like at all. I mean, I was really interested in studying form. I was really interested um, in voice in poetry and how you could use that like in conjunction with form to do different things. Um, and I sort of, I was not interested in like, for me, when I was living in El Paso, I felt very much like no one would really be all that interested in anything that is going on here at that time, right? It wasn't really as much, I think, on the national consciousness either as it is now. Um, and then when I left already for graduate school, even though I was in Albuquerque, which isn't even that far away, uh, all of a sudden I became like very obsessive about it. Um, and now, I mean, I think I think probably much of my career will be probably dedicated to to writing about the border and to border studies. Yeah. So and and just one more, and then I'll well, walk sure. around with the microphone. Um, in the poem, the. Um, 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 uh, the, the way you wear surgical masks, you say that it's an unbeat, unbeautiful, crafted poem. And just there, you're talking about how you studied form, and that poem itself is intersense, and, and it's crafted. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and looking at the entirety of the book, you write in sonnets throughout. I'm just wondering if you can tell, um, you know, how, how form informs this particular book. 
Um, this book, I think, is really interesting because it's so influenced by music that um, and, and traditional music, which is so form-based, right, in Spanish um, especially. And so for me, the intersection between this kind of music that follows a form to tell a narrative, a specific narrative, and trying to follow traditional poetic forms to tell these narratives just made sense to me. And the sonnet, I think, is having like a real moment, right, in, in the American consciousness, but I, I think that um, for me it made sense because I was writing so much. They're, they come across, I think, a lot of the ones that are sonnets as love poems, but they're obviously very disturbing love poems, right? And so, um, that is what I was interested in with the with the sonnet form, right? Was was making it uh, a love poem, but that that the speaker uh, herself is like is convinced it's a love poem, right? Um, and it's not. It's really only the the reader who who sees that it's not. That's right? a subversion. Yeah. I can go on asking her questions all day long, <laughs> but um, do any of you have questions? Please. Um, thank you so much. Um, those were really beautiful poems that really evoked a lot of images in my mind. I thank you so much for them. Um, you mentioned um, explaining the word femicide, and um, I remember the issue of the, the the women whose bodies were being found in, in Juarez was was quite a bit in the news about ten years ago, and you don't hear much anymore. And I'm just wondering if you could just you know, give us a sense of where that is all at now. Sure. Um, so much of this book in particular is about my adolescence and young adulthood, which was during that time, right, uh, when femicide was really in the news and on people's minds. Um, and, and then also when I was in college was the drug, the height of the drug war, right, in Juarez. Um, and so one of the things that's really fascinating to me was at that time, um, a lot of people who did border studies were talking about how the femicides and the kind of mass violence, that, especially against women, that we see happening in the, uh, happening on the border at that time was sort of a test tube for globalization and modernization, right? And like this like fast paced, you know, just living in modernity, right? Like, what does that look like with maquiladoras and all of this? And um, that it was something that would spread to other places, right? It wasn't just going to stay in Ciudad Juarez forever. And we see that now, right? I mean, in Latin America, I mean, Juarez has become, it's, it's trying to rebuild now. I mean, it, it really suffered greatly during the, the drug war and kind of became a ghost town for a while and is really now starting to rebuild. Um, but if you look at, you know, even in like central Mexico or in the south of Mexico now and into Latin America, I mean, it's a huge problem, right? The numbers for femicide are out of control and it very much has spread um, because these are vulnerable bodies and where this kind of violence is moving is, is you know, it's of interest. I mean, I think it's also like what what is happening culturally in a mode um, where you know, the economy is really weak, what happens um, when you put people in that kind of precarity that are already in really precarious situations. 
Um, and usually it's the death of, of young women in mass, right? They're the most disposable. Hi, thank you for your beautiful work. I'm Suzanne, and um, for 22 years I've been running a human rights program in Mexico. And um, I'm wondering about the place where art meets human rights and social movements, um, particularly where you're from in Paso Juarez, but more broadly, um, the border and what the border can say to the world and to the rest of this country mm -hmm. as we have this unbelievable uh, crisis mm -hmm. of our own democracy. Mm -hmm. I wonder where you are there. There's a lot there. Right? <laughs> um, let, let, me, let me think. So I think a, a few things. I mean, one thing for sure with regards to the first part, I think, of what you're asking um, with art and, and protest and social movements. Um, I think there's always sort of this really interesting delicate dance in which um, I think any good social movement is going to use artists, right? And is going to use art as a way to communicate with people because just using, um, you know, I mean, if you study anything with social movements, just using rhetoric is usually not going to be enough for every single person, right? You're kind of trying to appeal to people in a wide variety of ways, and art has that kind of malleability where you can kind of appeal um, to an audience in a on a lot of different fronts, right? An emotional front, kind of an intellectual front, whatever, right? And so um, I think that there's always that kind of uh, intersection. I think any you know, I mean, I, I think especially if we look at Latin America, right, there is no social movement really without poetry. I think it's very, very important to always think about those connections as poems being sort of the, um, you know, the, the thing that carries the soul of that movement, right? Like people can recite it, people can all of a sudden start playing music and everybody knows the words to that song because they know the poem, right? Things like that. Um, I do think that, especially with capitalism, this then becomes a really complicated question, right? Because oftentimes then that art is removed from its social kind of context and then shared with other people away from that context, right? And the minute that the art is completely, I think, void of that context, we sort of get into murky territory because then it's really often that we have things that, you know, Paso Juarez has suffered from for a long time, right? Like films like Sicario or whatever, where it just becomes a fetish for the viewer to watch the film and to say as an American, oh, I'm so glad I don't live there, right? I'm safe here. Look at how terrible it is there. Um, and so, you know, I think that there's Yeah, especially, and I mean, it's something like Sicario, of course, is not even made with like a social movement in mind, right? But it does sort of take like, oh, but we're talking about a real crisis, right? <laughs> um, and so you always have to be careful of that. Who is the audience, I think, is a huge question to always ask. And not just when the piece was made, but also how it's being shared, right? Which isn't always the artist's fault, and that's also where it gets tricky, right? 
And we all kind of have to be surfing these questions of art and um, and social movements and, and bringing awareness to things. Is that enough, right? What does the awareness do for people who are living that trauma? Again, uh, thanks so much for, for being here. Uh, another writer who has uh, been another part of the border, uh, Luis Alberto Rea, with Tijuana, San Diego. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the first nonfiction that he wrote was The Devil's Highway. Mm -hmm. and, and while you were reading some of your poetry, and of course I read it, but the way you uh, uh, read it, Reminded me a lot of what he found. This is more of a commentary than a question, but uh, a lot of what uh, he found in his investigative work to be able to come out with the the book, The Devil's Highway, in the pockets of the people that were found in the desert, um, and, but didn't get to uh, their destiny alive, and and a lot of that was poetry, where uh, a woman would write the last letter knowing that she might not ever see her family again, or a fellow who wanted to say goodbye to his girlfriend who was down in Guadalajara or further south. So, so, so but that had a great power of communication to people who are not aware of the tragedy of it all. Mm -hmm. and, and I think her poetry does, uh, does the same or more. Oh, thank you. That means so much. Thank you so much. It was extraordinary to hear you. You're an amazing poet and, and reader of your poetry, too, thank which you. often don't go hand in hand. <laughs> um, my name is Cecile, and I just want to tag on to what Suzanne was and ask you, uh, so where do you actually see your poetry fitting in? to the social movement because you talk about some very powerful feminist stuff I see um, and I'm just curious how you see yourself fitting into the social movements and how your poetry can really have some power in moving people's uh, perceptions of what's going on at the border and certainly of growing up in El Paso and on the yeah. border town. Um. One of the things, especially when I was working on my first book, where I was really, I mean, I'm still obsessive with it, but it was the first time that I was really forcing myself to ask that question, um, was showing El Paso Juarez in a way that was still teeming with life, right? Because so often, all of, a lot of the, the literature that I, that I would encounter, which there's a lot about El Paso Juarez. I mean, if you, you know, the minute that I was like, I'm going to write a book about El Paso Juarez, it was like, here's your huge reading list of things that you need to, you know what I mean, like, read in order to really know what you're talking about. And, um, and so much of it, though, is really um, either very much a, a very traditional kind of victim narrative, um, where you know the victim knows they are a victim. Does that make sense? And is confessing to being a victim, uh, which in my experience, that's never been my experience with people who I would say um, are suffering at the hands of, of all kinds of abuses. I mean, it takes a long time for somebody to really realize that what they're that they're surviving something when they're in the middle of it, right? Like that's not something that happens. Um, 
And the other part of it that I was sort of asking myself with regards to the Virgin Cities was, what does it mean to show that even amongst all of this like violence, what does it mean to what does it mean to show a place that where people also you know like fall in love and have a life and do very daily things, um, and that that is that is also a part of the experience. Um, as far as the other part, I think, of your question with regards to how I see it fitting in with this delicate dance, I mean, I'm, I'm always questioning myself, right? I don't know that it's something that I have, um, like, a set answer to. Um, there are things that I, like, won't do with my work, you know, like, I, I won't. I, you know, I've been offered opportunities for it to, like, be put on display at, like, you know, I don't know, like Austin City Limits or South by Southwest or things like that. And there's something really dark to me about that, right? Um, yeah, my poetry, right? Which on the one hand, you're like, wow, how cool. Like, all these people will encounter it. That's neat. On the other hand, it's like the setting of this is a festival where people are probably, you know, they're going to like, what? go there like in between beers and like read this poem and then like toss out their beer and then just keep walking along with their day. I don't know. It's just for me, at least personally, I have a hard time with it. Um, and so I don't know that that's the place or the manner in which I want people to encounter my work if I have control over that, right, in that moment, which I did. You don't always, right? Um, so if you do have control, I, I try to at least say, the manner of any meeting is important, right? Including with poems. Well, just one one more quick question for me. Um, of course, um, there'll be um, so. Um, uh, you know, you you were talking about uh, um, films and and who they're uh, geared toward or who who they're targeting their audience. And I'm wondering. I'm thinking to the um, journalist's notebook poem um, in in Virgin Cities, um, and I'm wondering if there are any journalists that you would recommend who are are writing to um, are are writing about uh, the border in a way that's not necessarily mm. for an audience. Mm, the last part of that question <laughs> is kind of tricky, right? Um, mm, I think it could just be my sensibilities. Um, if you're really curious, I could of course give you some. I, I, but I want to say right here, now that I'm on the podium, I, that I think that I turn to other forms of art to really get a glimpse of, um, of issues that I don't see being covered in the news. Um, and poetry is one of them, right? The, the dailiness of who is living that news, um, I definitely turn to poets for that, um, and, and artists, and, um, and, and you know I think prose writers as well, if they can, some do it very, very well. 
So I think that to me is, is important. Uh, there are some nonfiction writers that I might kind of suggest more so in a Please. longer. Okay, yeah. Um, I would definitely suggest, like, I think Luis Alberto Rea is amazing. Um, it's very, very controversial, but I do think as far as getting uh, an on-the-ground look at what border agents do, I think that Francisco Cantu's book is very interesting in my mind, though I don't agree with all of it. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, I think that those are our two. Oh, Cristina um, Rivera uh, is, I think she's incredible. Uh, with the stuff that she does. If you have never read The Crest of Ilion, I would highly, highly recommend that book um, with regards to thinking and questioning um, violence and bodies uh, in border spaces. Um, she's doing it in a nonfiction way that I find fascinating. Chris, well, thank you everyone for coming out. We'll have a reception out there, and if you want to ask questions, and um, uh, in private, I'm sure Natalie will entertain them. Um, thank you. You've been listening to a Lannan podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts at podcast.lannan.org. In addition, the Lannan Audio Archives presents similar programs by national and international writers, poets, and social activists at www.lannan.org. Listen to hundreds of hours of recorded programs from the likes of Seamus Haney, Joy Harjo, Eduardo Galliano, Arundhati Roy, Jim Harrison, Edwidge Danticott, and Noam Chomsky. New programs are added every month to both the podcasts and the audio archives. <laughs>